0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is the proper use of eminent domain. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics Podcast, we are building an audio library on basic policy concepts and topics from a free market, limited government standpoint for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy, or who need to get up to speed on a particular issue. And so the particular issue we want to talk about today is eminent domain. And I'm joined, again, as always, by our resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. So eminent domain is the term that we use for when either the government or a government-authorized agent Mm -hmm. uh, takes private property for a public use. So, for instance, if a road is being built or a highway is being built or an airport or a water pipeline or a sewage system or something, or or even if, like, electrical service is being brought into a new area or cable service or something like that, these are viewed as public uses. Mm -hmm. And so in the Constitution, in the Fifth Amendment, the takings clause allows for the fact that there may be times when property needs to be taken – for a public use. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to talk in a few minutes ago about what the various parameters of that are. We're not talking about Burger King being able to come and take your property away from you so that they can put up a Burger King. Mm -hmm. The public may like Burger King, but that's not a public use
1: as understood in the Constitution.
0: The the public, generally speaking... That the public broadly uses or requires. Um, And so... One of the reasons why eminent domain is so controversial is that it occurs at this sort of intersection between two important values. And the first is property rights. Mm-hmm. We consider property rights to be nearly sacred in this country. Right. And rightly so. Uh, but on the other hand, we also understand that economic growth comes with certain necessary Inconveniences like the need for roads and airports and water distribution, electrical distribution and sewage systems and oil and gas pipelines and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so we have this policy construction of eminent domain about when is it legitimate to take private property for a public use? And when is it not?
1: Well, I get your point about the property rights, because if my neighbor wants to come buy my house because he likes it or something of that nature, and I say, no, I don't want to sell, I feel like that's the end of it. My neighbor wants to buy it, no matter how much my neighbor wants to offer. If I don't want to sell it, I don't have to sell it.
0: And that's because your neighbor is not using it for a public use. (laughs) Your neighbor is using it for a private use. And so that's why we say, for instance, uh, if my neighbor just would really like to have a strip of my road frontage he doesn't get to take it. Right. But, but on that, the other hand, the electric company, if they need a strip of my road frontage to lay in new electrical wires, they in many cases can take it. They can demand that 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 I sell them or grant them an easement.
1: But your point about the importance of property rights, it reinforces my feeling that my property rights are absolute to an extent yeah. in the fact that I can if my neighbor wants to buy something and I don't want to sell it, I don't have to. That right. makes me feel like I I I shouldn't have to sell this under any circumstances, but that's not the case.
0: It's not the case, and you've touched on something really important. And, in fact, we did a previous IPI Policy Bites on this topic, which is that our rights are not absolute. None of our rights are absolute. So property rights, albeit very important, are not absolute. So, for instance, it doesn't matter how many no trespassing signs you put up on your property, right? The law allows for people to cross your land. If they're fleeing bodily harm, Mm -hmm. if they're fleeing bodily injury— If they need access to someplace else. That's exactly right. Someone is literally allowed to forcibly enter your home if they're seeking refuge Hmm. from an attacker or, again, bodily harm or whatever. Um, When you think about things like zoning, if you want to put up a pig farm in your backyard, you're not allowed to more than likely, even though it's your property. So our property rights are not absolute. And again, you know, none of our rights are absolute. Your right to freedom of speech is not absolute. You can't let yell fire in a crowded theater, et cetera, et cetera. So – Where eminent domain ends up hitting property rights is in this issue that, you know what, property rights are very important, but they're not absolute. And there may be certain cases where, for public use, property can be taken. Now, I think it's actually kind of astonishing that the takings clause even exists in the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, because the people who wrote the Constitution were very skeptical of government power. Mm -hmm. It was not their intention in the Constitution to create a bunch of government power. But in the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment, the language says property may not be taken except for public use and must include just compensation. Mm -hmm. So the founders anticipated that eminent domain would be necessary, but they wanted to make sure that it had to be for a public use, not for a private use, and that you had to have just compensation. You couldn't just seize it and take it, even if it's for a public use. Now, conservatives have been generally very sort of skeptical and opposed to eminent domain because again conservatives really value property rights mm-hmm. you know and so you you have some conservatives who have literally thought that eminent domain is never appropriate in any circumstance in fact i had a i had a discussion a few years ago with a conservative activist and when i was pointing out that eminent domain is actually in the constitution under limited terms this activist said, well, then the constitution's wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's where you end up. If you think property rights are absolute, right? But of course, property rights are not absolute. Now there's two conditions in the constitution on eminent domain on takings. And the first is it has to be for a public use. And the second is there has to be just compensation. So let's talk for a few minutes about what is a public use. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what are public uses that qualify for eminent domain are actually defined in law and they're defined by court decisions and things like that. So for instance, here's just a list of a few things that, that in law or in court decisions have been found to be public uses. And it tends to be things like necessary public infrastructure. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's things like airports and runways, ports, highways and roads, railroads, uh, Lakes, water reservoirs that are being built for, mm-hmm. to make sure that the public has an adequate supply of water. Uh, dams mm-hmm. to dam up lakes uh, to create hydroelectric electricity generation and things like that. Um, natural gas, oil, and other kinds of pipelines that are necessary to move and transport things across so, the country.
1: So the eminent domain can work for things on above ground, like airports Mm -hmm. and roads, but if they're digging a trench and putting in a pipeline, and then they cover it up, and then nobody ever sees it again, Mm -hmm. that's still eminent domain. Yes,
0: that's exactly right. And those are the things that have been found to be public uses, okay? So, again, we're not talking about somebody wants to put in a supermarket, Mm -hmm. right? Or someone wants to put in a Burger King or a movie theater or something. Uh, Those are not public uses. Those are private uses. So, So we decide, and we have decided in law, what is considered a public use and what is not considered a public use. Now, you'll notice that we have not said thus far in this podcast that eminent domain is when the government takes something, Mm -hmm. okay? Now, most of the time, eminent domain is when the government takes something, when a state or city or county or the federal government says, we need to take this property for a public use. And so when the government does that, the government has to provide just compensation. And you know, there's a whole discussion about what's just compensation. Mm-hmm. Is it what I think it's worth or is it what you think it's worth? But we've not said that only government can exercise eminent domain because that's not true. There are a number of different kinds of infrastructure companies that have been empowered by government and by law to exercise eminent domain. So think about the things we just talked about. We just talked about Highways and roads, electrical transmission, telecom and broadband, water, sewage, gas, oil, pipelines, things like that. Very, very often in our country, in fact, most of the time, those are built and owned by private companies, mm-hmm. not by the government. Now, generally speaking, if it's going to be an airport or something or a dam or something like that, those tend to be government – prior highways, they tend to be government projects. But a lot of what we've just discussed as critical infrastructure – is built and maintained by private companies. And so private companies have been empowered to use eminent domain. And we want to make this point that that's not a violation of the Constitution. The Constitution does not say only the government can exercise eminent domain. It says it has to be for a public use. And public use doesn't mean government use. And this is one of the big areas of misunderstanding that we run into, on the, on the issue of eminent domain is people just assume that public use means government use, and it doesn't. Public use is defined by the nature of the infrastructure, not by who owns it or who's doing it. And in fact, we would argue that having private companies building infrastructure and using eminent domain is actually a feature, not a bug. Because think about this, right? If the Constitution said that only government could exercise takings – that would mean that only the government could build and own infrastructure. So that would mean that all electrical transmission, all water and gas and septic systems, all broadband and telephone lines, all ports, they would all have to be built and owned by the government if only the government could use eminent domain. So for those of us who really value small, limited government, if you think that only the government should be allowed to to exercise eminent domain, that's a recipe for bigger, more powerful government. That's a recipe for government being in control of all infrastructure rather than having private companies building and owning and maintaining infrastructure.
1: So playing the devil's advocate here, let's say I have a property that has been in my family for generations Mm -hmm. and somebody wants to, the government or a private company wants to uh, take part of it and they're coming to offer me a price and Mm -hmm. I reject it and I reject it and reject it. Would the... Critics say you just allow them to reject it until you, they finally come to a price that somebody would sell, or w- what's the objection to this? Because everybody knows you've got to
0: have roads and other things. Right. So that's a perfect transition to the next point, which mm. is what is just compensation? How do you determine that, right? And and we should point out that one of the reasons why this is so difficult and, and controversial and even emotional for people is that. When you're talking about eminent domain, you're, t- you're talking about a situation where you do not have a willing seller, mm-hmm. right? I mean, markets work, generally speaking, because you have willing buyers and willing sellers. And when we're talking about eminent domain, we're in a world where there's not a willing seller. They don't want to sell that portion of their ranch so that a railroad can go through. In fact, they don't even want to sell an easement mm-hmm. so that a pipeline can go through. Um, they just, it's their land and they don't want the bother. They don't want their, their, you know, cattle or their horses disturbed. They don't want their land torn up, their fences knocked down. They're not a willing seller. So you've got a willing buyer, but you don't have a willing seller. And so markets normally answer all of your questions when you have a willing buyer and a willing seller. But when you don't have a willing seller, now we've got to figure out, okay, so how do we answer these questions? What is it worth? What's the right price? What's just compensation? And the way this is determined is literally gonna vary from state to state because states have their own laws about how do you determine just compensation? Is there is there forced arbitration? Is it determined by a judge? In some states, you know, you may have to get three different appraisals, you know, in some states you may only have to get one appraisal. Here in Texas, where where IPI is based, we've gone through this the last several legislative sessions because of the fact that we generate a great deal of oil and natural gas, Mm -hmm. and it has to be delivered to the Gulf. It has to be delivered to port so that it can be refined and shipped. And so you've got people that own ranch land, and they've already had two or three pipelines come across their land, and now somebody wants to build another one. And they just flat don't want to do it. They don't want Mm -hmm. the disturbance. And so you end up with this issue of, okay, so how are we going to decide what just compensation is? And, Typically, what most states say is just competition is fair market value, Mm -hmm. but you don't have a market. You have an unwilling seller. So how do you determine what a fair market value is? And again, that's going to vary from state to state depending on the law and whether they require neutral arbitration or forced arbitration, whether you have to get a certain number of appraisals or whatever. But at the end of the day… Many of these cases end up getting settled in courts mm-hmm. where literally a judge ends up saying this is a fair price. Now, not always. There are people who are more than happy to you know, either sell an easement or actually sell a portion of their land for a high price. But you have this issue in eminent domain where the, the person who holds out the longest – is in the strongest position mm-hmm. to get maybe the highest price. Right. And so there's actually an incentive to hold out rather than sort of cooperate with the process. So if
1: if everybody along the pathway has sold out except for me mm-hmm. and they need me, then I actually have the so a certain leverage to be able to get a higher price because I'm the last I'm the last one they've got to get.
0: Exactly. Now Part of our purpose in this recording this Policy Basics podcast is to explain the proper use of eminent domain and to explain to folks that eminent domain, there's nothing wrong with eminent domain so long as it's done within the limitations of the Constitution, so long as it's for a public use, and so long as there's just compensation. Mm -hmm. But there's a broad area, I think, of possible discussion here about what is just compensation. Okay, maybe fair market value is not just compensation. Okay, what if that's the piece of land you've been holding back for your for your son and daughter-in-law to build a house on someday? Mm -hmm. And now somebody wants to come through and put a railroad through it. Uh, Maybe the value of that land is actually higher than fair market value. You know, so I think we should be open as people who believe strongly in the value of property rights but who also grant that eminent domain is legitimate within the Constitution, I think we should be willing to say, there's a lot of room here for give and take on what just compensation is. And just compensation might be more than just fair market value mm-hmm. in some cases. And, you know, when you end up with an eminent domain settlement, you're probably going to have a situation where neither party is completely happy. You know, maybe the, maybe the party that is taking the property feels like they had to pay too much, and maybe the the property that is selling the property feels like they didn't get enough, you know, the the way these things normally work out. It's ugly. It can be difficult. It can be controversial and it can be emotional, but it is legitimate within the constitution when done within, again, within the four corners of the constitution, that it's a public use, not a private use and that there's just compensation. Now Mm -hmm. this should take us into a a little bit of a discussion about the Kelo decision, right? right? Because, We have an infamous Supreme Court decision called the Kelo decision, where the Supreme Court gave a private company the right to take a woman's house for what looks for all the world like a private use, Mm -hmm. not a public use. And that's one of the reasons why I, and I think you, and I think most conservatives think the Kelo decision was actually a mistake by the Supreme Court. So the Kelo decision, it was a pharmaceutical company, I think it was Pfizer, Mm -hmm. who wanted to build a new headquarters building or or a new regional headquarters building or something in a particular area. And so the state of New Jersey, right? Right. I think the state of New Jersey essentially granted them the power to do that. And so Mrs. Kilo, Suzette Kilo was her name, sued. And she Mm -hmm. said, this is not a public use. This is a private use. And it went all the way to to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court decided that, in fact, that was a public use. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, our much-adored Justice Antonin Scalia sided with the company saying that was a public use. Now, I don't think that was a public use, okay? If you wanted to stroll into that Pfizer building, uh, they wouldn't let you do that unless you passed through security, unless you had a legitimate reason they could turn you away. That's not a public use. And so I think most of us feel that the Kelo decision was a terrible mistake, and it broadened the definition of public use beyond what it really should be.
1: Yeah, and I recall the American Conservative Union, at their annual CPAC meeting, gave Kelo an award because of of that, because they were so outraged over that decision.
0: And the truly sad coda to that story is that even though they took her house from her, they never built. Mm -hmm. They never built what they were going to do. So she lost her case, she lost her home, and then the project was never even built. Right, uh, but in re- in re- in response, so so we want to be clear that we think the Kelo decision is wrong. That we don't think that was a public use. Um, And that it overly broadened the definition of public use. And so in response to that, a lot of states, especially red states, Mm -hmm. started passing laws that really, really restricted the ability of the state to exercise eminent domain Mm -hmm. because of this, you know, what was widely seen as a wrongly decided Supreme Court case. And, you know, I personally have been in favor of a lot of those tightening up efforts on eminent domain, but some of them tend to go a little too far. And so that's, again, part of the purpose of this podcast is to explain to folks that eminent domain is a legitimate function of either government or a government-authorized private actor so long as it's constitutional, so long as it's for a legitimate public use rather than a private use, and so long as there is something approaching just compensation for the taking of the property. Uh, No one's ever happy about it. But in a country that is growing and where the population is increasing, we know that there are going to be, on a regular basis, needs for these kinds of takings under the Constitution. Okay, so to sort of summarize what we've talked about, eminent domain, while controversial and very often emotional, is an appropriate function for government or for government-authorized private sector actors, so long as it meets the terms of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And those are two that it has to be for a public use, not a private use, and that there has to be just compensation. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to be pretty. Most of the time, it's going to be ugly. Most of the time, one or both parties to the transaction are going to come away unhappy. But it's it's part of the necessary friction in a country that is growing and that does have legitimate public uses. But I think we've also been careful to point out in this podcast that property rights are very important in this country and that they should be respected and there should only be takings when necessary, under necessary terms, and again, to make sure that they are within the Constitution.
1: And I think you could almost argue that the takings provision actually recognizes how important they are.
0: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And to point out that it it is not inappropriate for private companies to exercise eminent domain, That that is also constitutional, again, so long as it's for a public use and that there is just compensation. And finally, that we do think that the Kelo decision was a mistake Mm -hmm. and that it, it, it is appropriate for states to make sure within the states that any eminent domain that goes on within that state is done within the real intention of the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment, not the one that was expanded by the Supreme Court. Okay, so that's our Policy Basics podcast on eminent domain. We hope that you found that helpful and enlightening and interesting. You can find more about eminent domain, and you can find out more about these basic civics issues between government action and the private sector at our website at ipi.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.